Good evening, everybody. Thank you for choosing Jesus above the soccer. <clears throat> for some, that might have been a sacrifice. I'm guessing for most, not that much. Um, that's why you're here. Apparently, France and Croatia are playing. Might be important. Um, I'm kind of uh, going to adapt um, what I plan to share. Same thing happened to me this morning. Uh, this will be different from this morning because uh, I do see some familiar faces. Um, but just a, some core ideas. One of the things we see in the Gospels um, is that as Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, a couple of months before he goes to Jerusalem where he ultimately would get crucified, as he starts this journey to Jerusalem, the conflict he has, the opposition he starts to face, particularly from the religious leaders, starts to increase. And uh, one place we see that is in Matthew 22, where the Sadducees, they were one of the religious parties, and the Pharisees, they were a different one, they come to test Jesus. They're trying to catch him out so that they can, on one hand, try and discredit him with the people that are trying to follow him, but also so that they can find something to literally nail him with, okay, uh, that they can get him killed on or, or at least um, taken out by the Romans would have been their preference, I guess. And one of the questions in Matthew 22 that they ask Jesus, that one of the Pharisees, they want to test him, and they say to him, what are the greatest commandments? In other words, how do you know, if you think of everything we know from the Old Testament, everything God has revealed to us, what are the greatest commandments? So kind of what they're saying to him is, is your theology good? You know, can you handle the Bible correctly? They should have known better because Jesus' theology is great. But Jesus answers and he says, the whole law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, this is from about 35 onwards, I think, in Matthew 22, hang on <clears throat> two commandments. The first one, and I'm paraphrasing, is love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Okay? Love God with everything you've got. And then he said the second greatest commandment, which is next to it, the same as it, is you love your neighbor as yourself. And so basically, if you want to sum up, all the theology of the Old Testament, everything. Love God with everything you've got. Other places it says with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Just in a nutshell, with everything that you've got and as hard as you can. But while you're doing that, you also have to love your neighbor as you love yourself is usually the qualification that, they put, that is described with. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. These two central ideas are there again. These ideas are so important <clears throat> that in Luke chapter 10, where we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, which does everyone kind of know that parable? Heard it somewhere? I'll tell it a little bit later. A different teacher of the law, in fact, it says he's a legal expert. He's a, a lawyer. Now, in those days, to be a lawyer, a legal expert, you had to kind of be very, you had to know your Old Testament well, because the law and the Old Testament were linked. They were based on each other. So he's probably also a Pharisee or a priest who'd specialized, if we can put it that way. And he actually asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Very important question. And this time, Jesus kind of turns the tables on him and he says, well, you the, the expert in the law, how do you read the Old Testament? In other words, how do you interpret the Old Testament? I'm not sure if this happened before or after the, the other incident. And this guy replies and he says, well, the first thing is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with everything you've got. That's Deuteronomy 6. I'm an expert in the law. This is the guy speaking to Jesus. I know that. 
And then he says the second most important one is Leviticus, uh, what we call Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So it's those two ideas that are there together. Once when Jesus is confronted, and once when someone, it says in Luke 10, uh, 25, the teacher of the law, the expert of the law came to test Jesus. So again, there's this conflict and this testing. And so we have these two ideas, loving God with everything we've got, which sometimes, as people have taught about it or thought about it, they say that that refers to the vertical dimension. That's about our up, our relationship with God. And then they say that loving your neighbor as yourself is this horizontal thing. It's how we interact and relate with others in, in the community and so on. Our challenge is, is that often we kind of think it's an either or. That I'm going to love God now and, and when I've loved God enough and I've, I've gotten there, then I'll start to love people. Or other people, particularly um, those who have perhaps a compassion uh, motivation or perhaps even a social justice motivation, they want to do the loving the people. And, you know, you know, I love God when I'm in church on a Sunday, but the rest of the time is about justice or compassion and, and those kinds of things that happen. I don't think that that's particularly a biblical view. I don't think God wants us to live in an either-or world where we create dichotomies between loving God and loving our neighbors. I think God wants us to live in a both-and world where we love God as hard as we can and we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. I'll maybe try and tie that together and how we can do that a little bit later. I was reminded as we were worshiping of an uh, encounter I had with God many years ago. Now, this is not like one of those stories about, you know, the revival in the 50s, A, because I wasn't alive in the 50s. But th this is something that happened long ago, but I think it helps tie these two ideas together, and so maybe that's why I was reminded of it. It was during a time of revival in the church, um, in many churches across the world, and we used to come to meetings like this where we would soak in God's presence, and we would seek God very intentionally. And this particular encounter that I had, we went away in a camp, so we spent like the whole weekend seeking God. That's like serious loving God stuff, okay? It's like this, everything's about God. You kind of stop to eat some food, but some people didn't even stop to eat food. They just kept seeking God. No, seriously, it was like hardcore, okay? And so there's this build-up, and there's this thing of seeking God, and and sometimes when we encounter God, it can happen for different reasons. Um, I'll come back to my story. Uh, sometimes we come to God because we need healing. Something's hurt in us, something's broken, or we, and we're aware of it. And we come to God to find healing for our hurt. We come to God to find love, to find comfort. And that's a great reason to come to God. Nothing wrong with that. Other times, we come to God because we're become aware of our sinfulness, and we're battling with sin, and so we start seeking God as a way to overcome sin or to find forgiveness of our sins, to just get our consciences cleared. And when we come to Jesus and encounter him as our Savior, that's real, and that happens. And we, it's like our, uh, one of the songs we sometimes sing in church is like our sins have been erased and will never be the same, and that really happens. That happens as we seek God and encounter God. Sometimes we just seek God and we get caught up in his beauty and we fall, we just want to love him and we, and we encounter him and we just get enthralled and we get captured with who he is. And you, it can happen that you forget about time and, 
nothing. It's almost like you become lovesick. Has anyone here been lovesick? It's never happened to me, but um, I've heard about this where it's just, oh, that guy, um, or that girl, or um, whatever. Okay. And just, you get so enthralled or captured by the beauty of God. Now, this encounter that I had with God, I think it was about getting caught up in the beauty of God and getting caught up in that. Because I'd had other encounters where I'd received substantial healing, where I know I'd received forgiveness. And I got caught up here in the, in the beauty of God after a time of seeking Him. And it, the experience was this. It felt like the only way I can describe it is that I was overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, where I was so caught up with Him, so caught up with what He was doing, I just didn't want it to stop. Now, some people were saying, you know, God comes on you and you can't make Him stop. Well, He always can because God loves us and He respects our will. But sometimes He comes on you and you just don't want it to stop. So you kind of let it go. And fortunately, I didn't do anything too weird and embarrassing. Um, But I ended up, I know, lying on the floor. And it felt like, I know I was lying, but what it felt like was I was standing in the fire of God. And what I remember quite vividly is that as I looked up, it was like there was a, um, a tunnel or a pillar of fire, and I was standing in the middle of it. So it felt hot, but I wasn't burning. But I knew that there was, I was connecting with God. Um, there are experiences like this in the Bible, so biblical experience. Okay, I'm not freaky. And as I looked up, it was like heaven opened, and I was enthralled with God. And then something interesting happened in this encounter. And it doesn't always happen, but it helps tie this loving God and loving our neighbors together. And as I stood there, I knew I have an open heaven. And suddenly, as I felt like I touched the heart of God, I had this overwhelming desire to intercede. And I found myself interceding for nations as the nations would come to mind it was like in the spirit, a nation would come to mind. And I, I mean, I'm not a big intercessor or anything like that. But as I encountered God, I encountered something in his heart where he was after people. And so not every encounter with God has this direct dynamic where, you know, we love him. And then we suddenly discover in his heart, actually, he loves the person next to us as well. More than we could imagine, more than we can. And so I was, found myself interceding. For, for many nations. Um, and that took a while. And then it was like the Spirit of God withdrew. And so we love God with everything we've got. And sometimes we find comfort and strength in everything we need to just make it the next week for Jesus or to go to the next level and to love Him more and to keep on serving Him and calling Him. But often when we touch the heart of God, we find that the heart of God beats for people too. Okay. So God wants us to love him, but when we love him, something happens that we want to love our neighbors better. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so how do we do this? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? And this is the question that comes up in Luke chapter 10. And we're not going to read from the Bible, um, but it's in there, the, the story of the Good Samaritan where this expert of the Lord comes to test Jesus, and he then Jesus says to him, well, you've, is these two commandments are the greatest? And Jesus says to him, you have to do them. If you want to inherit eternal life, you have to do it. You can't just 
believe that you love God and believe that loving people is important. It has to go past mental agreement. It has to go past it. It has to turn into action. It's interesting. The word most used for godly love in the, Bible, in the New Testament particularly is agape, which occurs in a noun and in a verb form, which means there's a conceptual element. But most often it's in a verb. Because love in the New Testament is something you do. Now our challenge today is we think love is something primarily that you feel. Largely because we just watch too many movies. Okay. Because what the entertainment industry has done, whichever source of origin it has, it has romanticized love. It's made love about how you feel. So often you'll see in stories or movies or series or, or whatever it is you watch, they'll say, how do you know that this is the person you must marry? And one of the ways that question gets answered is, well, how do you feel when you are with them? Now that's, okay, it's, I mean, okay, it's rubbish. Um, <laughs> now there's truth. The, the, when you love, there is an emotive element. There, there has to be. Otherwise, well, arranged marriages tend to last longer than choice marriages. So, okay. But I'm not going to go down that road now. You know, because, you know, we can help you here. Eh? <laughs> and now all young single adults are freaking out. I'll bring it back. Okay. There, there is an emotive element to love. You see, there is a choice where I connect with God and it's not just duty. There's a, a heart-to-heart thing that happens. Or when you love your spouse, there has to be emotion there. But in love, there's also volition, there's will, there's choice that comes with it. And agape is when you choose the other's best, when you have the other's interests at heart actually above your own. And this is the love that it talks about when it says love your neighbor. It doesn't mean I just have kind feelings towards Sean here, because I've known him a long time. Okay, It doesn't mean I just have kind feelings. That's not loving your neighbor. That's just being kind. Agape, loving my neighbor means when Sean comes to me to talk, I have his best interests at heart. That's what agape means. That's what it means to, to love your neighbor. So this teacher of the law is challenging Jesus. And they have this interaction around what's the greatest thing, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And then the teacher of the law, it's like he hasn't learned his lesson that Jesus is clever. And he says to Jesus, the scripture says, wanting to justify himself, wanting to make sure that he was right and not wrong, he asks Jesus this, it's very dangerous to ask Jesus questions, but he asks Jesus, so who is my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself, he wants to know, am I doing the right thing? Who is my neighbor? So that's also a good question to ask. It is a question probably each of us should ask. And in response to this, Jesus tells him a parable. Now, I don't have time to talk too much about interpreting parables, but just a couple of quick ideas. The point of a parable is in the response that it elicits. Okay? And all parables, only really, all true parables, only have one main point. And often that point is in, about the response that it brings forth in people. And it's interesting, some parables we don't have context for, we don't know what happens before or after. But in many of the parables that are told, the disciples, the gospel writers, actually record for us what people's responses were to the parables because they understood. So, just quickly, a parable works like a joke. Okay, it's not a joke, it works like a joke. What's the point of a joke? 
It's to make you laugh. It's about the response. And often a joke will get you to laugh because of two things. One is the, the punchline, the little twist at the end. Something unexpected happens which forces you to giggle out loud. Okay? The other thing of a parable is, of a joke is that you need to have some familiarity with the details of the joke to draw you in. So um, <laughs> to understand why a Fanamadva or if there's any Shabalalas or Kamalas here or why any Fanamadvas, I'm very sorry. But to understand why a Fanamadva joke is funny, what do you have to know? That there's a connotation with Fanamadvas, at least in Afrikaans culture. Okay, to understand a blonde joke. Sorry, I'll just look. Why are blonde jokes funny? What do you have to understand to get a blonde joke? That there's a completely unfounded correlation with hair color and intelligence. Okay, if you don't know that, then the joke isn't funny. So this is true. Uh, we are, we have a number of Korean students that study with us now. In Korea, there's not many blonde people. Okay, most Koreans have dark hair, unless they bleach it and they're K-pop stars or something. And so sometimes when Korean students come and then you uh, perhaps tell a blonde joke or one of the students tells a blonde joke, they just look at you. Why? Because they don't? No. Then you can explain to them why it's funny, and they still look at you. Um, and then they might go, oh, okay, I understand why it's funny, but they don't get it. Now, there's this sense in parables as well. There's certain things from the first century culture, as Jesus tells these stories from every day, that were familiar to the people. But there's certain things that they got that we don't get because we're not there. So we have to study a little bit to understand it, to get it. And so Jesus tells this parable of the Good Samaritan, which many of you have indicated you're familiar with, so I'm going to go quite quickly. But he says a man travels from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets mugged. Okay. Now, everyone in those days would have known that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is very dangerous. In fact, there's certain parts of it or a part of it that they called the road of blood. Because, you know, if you travel that way, chances are. So Jesus doesn't have to explain that. And anyway, this guy travels and he gets mugged. Then a priest walks past, a Jewish religious leader walks past. He ignores the man who's been mugged and he keeps going. The next person that comes past is someone who literally works in the temple. He's a Levite. And he walks past... And I know sometimes worship people talk about modern-day Levitical ministry. Look what your ancestors did. Um, and he walks past. Now, a lot of scholars go into, now, why did they do that? It's not important. The detail's not important. The point is they didn't behave in the way that they were expected to behave. Because Jesus is speaking to a Jewish expert in the law. You would at least expect that good Jewish people know what to do with people in distress. And then Jesus goes on and he says, but then a Samaritan came along and he has mercy, he has compassion on this guy. He takes him, he treats his wounds, takes him to the inn, makes sure he's cared of, pay, pays all the bills, pays up front in advance. And the story goes on. And again, the details of the treatment are not central to the point of the parable either. So Jesus tells the story to the religious leader and then he says to him, which one was the neighbor? And the religious, the expert in the law then answers the one who showed compassion or the one who had mercy, depends on the translation that you're reading. And then Jesus looks at him, I can imagine, full of love, but fire in the eyes, and says to him, go and do likewise. Now we hear that parable, and because we're not familiar with some of the 
cultural things, we go, well, to be a good neighbor means we must have compassion on those in need. Is that true? That is part of being a good neighbor, that you show compassion to those in need. But we miss a key element in this parable. So like you need to know in the culture associations with Fanamervas or Kumalus, I'm told I'm not allowed to pick on the Tlaminis by Letitia's husband, or blondes, for example, one of the things we have to understand is how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not liked by the Jews. They were disregarded, despised, they were ostracized, they weren't allowed in, they were kept out. One of the main reasons for that is that they worshipped funny. In other words, they worshipped God, but not properly. But they thought they did. In the history, the, people, the Jewish people who lived in that part of Israel, they used to call it the Northern Kingdom, got taken into exile by the Assyrian Empire. And so what the Assyrians would do is, if, when they conquered Jews, they would take you away, and they'd put other people from another place that they'd conquered, and they would let them come live there with whoever got left behind. And this is what happened in that part of Israel around the city of Samaria, is some Jewish people got left behind, most got taken away, and then foreigners got brought in. And those foreigners brought with them their customs and their religious beliefs. And over time, a couple of hundred years, the foreigners and the Jewish people who lived there became a new people. They intermarried, they mixed their religion, so they had a religion that wasn't, was kind of Jewish but wasn't Jewish. They had customs that were kind of Jewish but weren't. And so the Jews of those, those days felt like these were the sellouts. These were the ones who'd compromised. They were not fit. In fact, it was so bad... Um, imagine if you think of the map of Israel, Jerusalem is over here, and Galilee, where Jesus did a lot of the miracles and where a lot of the disciples came from, is kind of north. It's up here. The shortest route from Galilee to Jerusalem, straight down, would have made, meant that you had to travel through a Samaritan region, a Samaritan territory. Most Jewish people wouldn't do that, partly because the road was dangerous, but just in case you bump into a Samaritan, they wouldn't go that way. They actually traveled a longer way around. They went kind of down the Jordan River and then turned towards Jerusalem. They would walk a longer walk in the days when you walked far just to avoid meeting the Samaritans. They didn't like them. They despised them. They wanted nothing to do with them. And so when Jesus is telling the story to the expert in the law, when he says, but a Samaritan came along, probably, I'm telling story now, okay? Probably the hairs on the back of the religious leader's neck went up, because this is not what you would expect from a Samaritan. This behavior of compassion is not what you would expect. You'd expect the priest and the Levite to do it, but not the Samaritan. Now, it's interesting when we read this parable to look at the questions that are asked. This parable was told in response to one specific question. Who is my neighbor? The question isn't, what do good neighbors do? If the question was, what do good neighbors do, then the answer is they show compassion and they help those in need, which is it's truth. But that's not the question that's been asked here. The question that's been asked here is, who is my neighbor? Now, probably if we read this and we listen to the story, there's four options. The one is my neighbor's the one who got mugged next to the road. But then the other three are pretty straightforward. It's either the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan. Those are the easy answers. We know the priest and the Levite weren't good answers, so the obvious answer then probably is the Samaritan. But this expert in the law that Jesus is interacting with, he can't even say 
Well, Jesus, the Samaritan, was the good one. He has to say, it's the one who showed compassion. He can't even (laughs) name him. That's the level of prejudice, let's use that word, that's in his heart. Because you see, one of the things that parables do is they expose the heart. Often when Jesus uses a parable, he's going straight for the heart. So this teacher of the law comes to Jesus with clever questions, wanting to justify himself. And Jesus just goes straight at his heart. Basically what Jesus says to him is, if you want to inherit eternal life, you've got to love God with all you've got. You've got to love your neighbor. Which one of these is your neighbor? The teaching of the law says it's the one who showed compassion. And then Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. In other words, go and show compassion to the Samaritans. We don't know what the teacher of the law did. It's not recorded for us. We do know he didn't ask any more questions because they're not recorded for us. And so this question that is who is my neighbor became very difficult for this expert in the law to answer because he probably thought he had it all sorted. How would Jewish people of Jesus' day answered this question? If you had to say to most of them, who is my neighbor, they would go, well, it's my Jewish people, my peeps. Okay, people like me, they're my neighbor. My people from my culture, upbringing, from my hometown, they're my neighbor. Because this guy's an expert of the law, he would have known that there's, uh, just further down in Leviticus, in what we call chapter 19, about verse 33, it says, earlier on it says you must love your neighbor as yourself. Then it just also says you must love the resident alien among you because you were once aliens in Egypt. And so knowing the law a good Jewish person would have said, well, my neighbor is Jewish people and resident aliens. I would, they would have been able to answer it that way because that's what's in the text. That's in the Old Testament. But I suspect that in the first century Jewish debate, that question went a little further. Because at that time, the Jewish nation had basically been conquered by the Romans. They were under Roman, very fair to say, they were under Roman dictatorship. And so one of the questions they were probably wrestling with is, well, does God expect us to love the Romans too? After all, they are conquerors and invaders, and they tax us, and they oppress us. Or I don't think many of them would have thought that we're supposed to love the Samaritans because they're just, they're not good Jews, they're not good Gentiles, they're just, they actually used to call them half-breeds, okay? They're just mixed race, and, and Jesus comes and he challenges this paradigm in the first century. And so as we're loving God with all our hearts and everything we got, and we worship him like we did tonight, and we want more of him, we also need to live in this both-and world, that as we love God, we need to love our neighbors. And so the question tonight is, who is your neighbor that God is challenging you to love? If we read the newspapers and and we look at things, internationally, it's not just a South African phenomenon, but internationally, there's a trend to characterize things by what's been termed now a politics of identity or identity politics. Um, I know there's some Americans here, so I won't pick on them, but there's a great example that way. Okay. Where how you identify is based on who you are. If you ask, try to answer the question, who is my neighbor, out of the space of resurgent nationalism or out of the space of 
identity politics, you will never find God's answer because you're trapped in a framework. But as a disciple of Jesus, someone who wants to follow Christ, a citizen in God's kingdom, the answer to the question is, who is my neighbor, is all people. Everyone is your neighbor. Not just those who are in need, but the Samaritans are your neighbor. Your family is your neighbor. You know that uncle that's difficult? It's your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. And so Jesus really expects us to love everyone. You say, but how's that possible? How can I engage with others where I've always got their best interests at heart? It's only possible if, you've got, if you're loving God. It's the only place you can get the proper motivation, impetus, and energy to keep doing that on a sustained basis. But you can't love everyone all the time. It's just not humanly possible. So maybe this can help you. How do you love people? One at a time, as best as you can, motivated by God. One at a time, as best as you can, motivated by God. So it's when you walk up to that bank teller or the checkout clerk at the shop. One at a time, as best as you can. It's when that person walks into your office or your child comes home from school or you engage with a family member or a friend. One at a time, as best as you can, in that moment. And you, the, mo- the question is, how do I act in this person's best interest? Now, that doesn't mean to love somebody in this way. I need to qualify this because I think it's important for some people. That you agree or condone wrongdoing. When Jesus challenges this expert in the law to love the Samaritans, he doesn't expect him to agree that the Samaritans are now right. They're still wrong. They're still worshiping correctly. They probably don't live such good lives. But that's not a reason not to love people. So loving people doesn't condone wrongdoing. Can I just be clear about that? Loving people doesn't condone wrongdoing. Loving people doesn't mean that they shouldn't go to jail and pay for the things they've done wrong. It might mean, I heard an interesting story of a guy who knew a young person that they later then developed a drug habit and then they caught this person stealing from them to finance the drug habit. And he caught him and he confronted him and he took him to the police and the guy got arrested and he went to jail. Because the, the way he could act in this person's best interest was to let him go to jail. How's that for love? <laughs> Doesn't feel great at all. But it's love. And then you care for them while they're in jail. Because God loves them. Okay. So... I feel, just as we were in worship, I felt there were perhaps two points of ministry tonight. We'd like to pray for you if you want to love God more. You want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want to love Him more. You want to get more of Him. And there was a call, and I think for some of you that's happened where it said, come to the altar of grace, it was that you guys sang. Come to the altar of grace. You come and you abandon yourself before God. That's loving God when we do that. But if you want more of God, we're going to ask some of the leaders to come and we're going to pray for you for that. Part of that, and there was a specific word that came out during the worship time, is during the worship you might have heard Pastor Sean praying and you might have not understood the language, but he was whispering, he was actually praying in tongues or speaking in tongues. He was speaking in a heavenly language. One of the things that happens when God fills us with his spirit is he gives us gifts. 
And one of the gifts that comes available most commonly that is a sign of being filled with the Spirit is this ability to pray in other languages, foreign tongues. Sometimes they're heavenly languages, sometimes they're earthly languages. There's different testimonies of it happening in different ways. But if you want more of God, you need to, first of all, be filled with the Spirit. Pray that God, we can pray for you that you'll be filled with the Spirit. But also then that you can perhaps receive the gift of speaking in tongues. Perhaps some of you have been filled in the Spirit for long, but you've never just had that release. You don't have to pray in tongues. You can have other gifts in the Spirit. But there's something that happens when we can pray in the Spirit that we get built up within ourselves. And that's one of the ways we can love God, grow in God, um, build ourselves up in the faith. And so we want to make opportunity for that. So I've asked Pastor Sean. He's going to stand there. Okay, because he's sitting on this side. I'm thinking in his best interests. Um, Pastor Sean's going to stand here. And if you want to be filled with the Spirit and you want to pray in tongues, then Sean will pray for you. Ian, could you join him? Is that fine? Pastor Ian will join him. So if you want that opportunity available. If you just want prayer in general, just that you want more of God in your life, you want to love God more, also come to the front. But then I have a prayer that I'm going to pray for all of us and that we learn to love our neighbors better. And so here's the perhaps more confrontational question. Who's your Samaritan? Who's the one person that you think doesn't deserve to be loved? The person perhaps that you've despised, disqualified, or want to keep separate. It can be a person that's wronged you, which again, you can love them without condoning what they've done. In those kinds of situations, perhaps someone got you fired from your job. Perhaps someone did other, other things far worse to you. Loving that in that instance, often starts with coming to a place of being able to forgive. And that doesn't happen just always like this. Sometimes it's a journey of forgiveness. But just so that you know, the loving people is also can start with just forgiving them. But perhaps it is a, a group of people. Perhaps it's a kind of person. Perhaps it's just something that happened or that you anticipate, difficult at work. Who's your Samaritan that God is challenging you to love? As you love yourself, in other words, to hold them in equal regard to what you hold yourself. Where if you want good for yourself, you want good for them. So can I invite you to stand? And I'd like to pray that for all of us tonight, and then we'll make some time for, for prayer afterwards. Father, just even as we worshipped you tonight, we sensed the, the sweetness of your presence. There was this that thing in the room where you were here. We even sang that you were here. And Lord, that's part of us experiencing your love and how much you love us. But Lord, you also want us to love others and to love neighbors. And perhaps with some of us in the room tonight, you're speaking to our hearts, just like Jesus many thousands of years ago spoke to that legal expert's heart. And I pray, Lord, that if there are Samaritans, if I may use that language, in our hearts, that by your Spirit you make us aware of that. But then, Lord, by that same Spirit that lives in us, you help us to overcome and to love. You help us, where necessary, to forgive. But you help us to hold that person in equal regard, to love them as we love ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, where we've done this poorly, because at some stage all of us have done this poorly. But help us to be more like you, 
where we can love you with everything, we can encounter your heart, and then we can carry that heart through to others. I pray even as we go into this week, Lord, you give us strategy and wisdom and ways to love others well. Because, Lord, if we want to be a body of heroes, if we want to be this community that you've called us to do, I know, Lord, that that involves loving our neighbors, whoever they are, one person at a time, as best as we can. So please give us the grace to do that. I speak your blessing on each one in this room. Ask that your face would shine upon them in this week and that they would know your presence and your favor in many places every day. I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you just like some general prayer for just more of God, there'll be some leaders and people here to pray for you. Particularly if you want to be filled with the Spirit, perhaps released in the speaking of tongues, please speak to Pastor Sean. Any of the other leaders who feel you want to participate in that ministry, you're welcome as well. Thank you very much. I trust you have a good week and a good evening ahead. Thank you.